Hi, I'm Sam Baker, co-founder and president at Wonder Mobility. I'm the host of the Wonder Mobility podcast today. I'm a huge fan of podcasts, and one that I can highly recommend about the future of mobility is the Future of Mobility podcast by Brandon Bartnick. Lots of great topics about challenges and opportunities facing transportation. A recent episode that I really enjoyed was with Jim Adler, who is the founding director of Toyota AI Ventures. Super interesting episode. Really check it out. Now on to our episode with Lucas Neckerman from Split. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Wonder Mobility Podcast. My name is Sam. I'm the president and co-founder here at Wonder. And I'm really excited to have with me today, Lucas Neckerman, the COO of Split. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Sam, it's a real pleasure to be here today together with you on this fantastic podcast. Starting off, Lucas, I think it would be great if you can give us a little bit of your history about how you got into the mobility space originally, what attracted you to this topic, and tell us the story. All right. So, Sam, I'm a, you know, I'm 15 years corporate and then eight years of consulting in the field of mobility. Why mobility is because basically I saw something happening right around 2000 and 13. And I had had lots of really, really interesting conversations with people at the time from Tesla and Zipcar and people working in the robotics space. And I said, man, there's something really exciting happening. And, and in particular, in speaking with a lot of my friends who are still in the auto industry, I didn't feel that they were seeing the same things that I was seeing. So I took a bunch of notes on all of the various meetings that I had those notes ended up becoming my first book, The Mobility Revolution. And I suppose the rest is history, right? I took that book and built a consulting business out of it, had the opportunity to work with lots and lots of exciting companies in the meantime, and helped guide a, a handful of startups along the way as well. And one of those relationships evolved into my role now at Split as Chief Operating Officer. It would be great if you can explain to listeners a little bit more about Split's business model, because you guys are very much in the background of transportation, powering very important processes. And this is going to be a great segue into a topic later when we talk about interoperability. Sure. I'd like to say that uh, we're one of those companies that very, very few people see, but over a billion people can touch in some way, shape, or form. So Split sits in between super apps and what we call lifestyle apps. So that's mobility in particular, but also another business line that we are building now is, is food as well. So if you think about Alipay or Grab or even Trip.com, these are apps that have built in ride hailing into the apps. And what we do, what Split does is it creates the link to the providers in the background. So the user never actually sees split, but the user sees delivery of a service anywhere in the world. And what it does, it creates stickiness, it creates loyalty, it creates additional revenue, frankly, for these super apps that just can add, very, very simply, another service to their portfolio. Some of the examples you mentioned are about private companies connecting different services together. So maybe to, to pull an example, if you're saying Trip.com, they want to offer a ride-sharing component as a part of their overall 
trip offering, then you offer an integration that allows their users to easily book a ground transportation wherever they are in the world. And in the context of the trip.com interface, as I understand it. To what extent, though, does this extend outside of the realm of private companies into the public sector? Because this is a topic that's been coming up now more recently around multimodality and private-public partnerships with respect to transportation in cities. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this, for Split specifically, or maybe in general, extends into the public sector and public transportation? I think what you're referring to, Sam, is this uh, emerging world of mobility as a service and and, and mass apps uh, that are very much, from what I can see, still still highly localized. It's cities building mass apps. It's uh, a series of fantastic mass apps for, for, for what they do in individual cities or individual regions. And I suppose the challenge around that is that it limits. It limits the scope. If you think about some of these super apps, whether it's the ones I mentioned or even other companies that have declared the intention now to create super apps, a lot of financial services organizations, credit card companies. In the U.S., Walmart said that they want to create a super app that goes beyond what they offer in the retail stores. It's it's all about, you know, loyalizing the users and cities. Well, they're not they're, they're not set up to loyalize users beyond the scope of their own city. So, I, I suppose the public, the, when you talk about the public and public organizations, public institutions, they have a very very different objective to you know big uh, super app and uh, mostly private companies. We've seen examples of these mass platforms in cities, but I'm wondering to what extent they are really being used for public transit use cases. Do you have any experience with that or have you seen any numbers around how successful these platforms really are and and how they really do drive retention among users, as you're sort of alluding to here? Mm. Well, frankly, I guess you would have to, you would have to ask them. I think uh, part of the question is why are they being created? From a city point of view, it's to simplify residents getting around. But there's also an alternate objective. It's to promote the use of public transport, which is always in the interest of cities. And I understand that. I completely understand that. But in some cases, it goes against what the user actually wants. So there's a disconnect between the user preference and what the city wants. Interesting. In what sense does it go against the user want? Well. Let's face it, in most cities, the user is looking for point-to-point or max one transition between modes. Now, I'm a huge fan of multimodality in principle and from the perspective of the city. But in reality, if you're a traveler, if you're going into a city, you, you, you don't want to manage that for yourself because it's a very, very complex thing. And we haven't been able to manage this you know, three and four mode multimodality very simply for the user yet. So by and large, the user is accustomed to single mode or at most two mode transportation. And public transport doesn't necessarily allow for that. And again, I love and I support public transport. But for a lot of the use cases, in particular, the ones that we are about, when people are coming into cities, oftentimes, where they're not familiar with the city, they're looking for point to point. 
And the local mobility as a service app isn't necessarily set up for that. How do we think about that? Is it that, so last mile, you might start from your home, then you take an electric bike to go to a train station, just using an example. Then they take the train to another destination. And then on the other hand, you to get to your final destination, you take maybe a kick scooter. So then you've made basically made at minimum two transitions. But then that assumes a direct train ride, which it might actually not be. So you might have a, another transition there. So really it's like two to three transition as opposed to point to point. Right, right. Uh, I think what you're describing is, is more often the case in, in mega cities, in a city like, uh, like London, maybe uh, like Paris, like New York, where indeed, yes, you might take a bike to catch a train, catch the train, then you get on the subway, and then you take either a scooter or a ride hail to get to your final destination, have, you know, these multiple mode journeys. But in reality, in most mid-sized cities, people are, again, looking for point to point, whether that's by scooter, by e-bike, by ride hail, or whatever. And that is, therefore, also the limitation of public transport, and frankly, also a, a missed opportunity an opportunity that I think that, that they can actually fill and that they have the resources and the companies are out there that can help them fill those gaps in their service. This is a really interesting point we're on, which is, you know, the, who are, when you say they, who is they, right? And, you know, private companies versus the public sector operators. And then there's also the role of the regulator as well, which are sometimes different entities. So help us understand kind of who are the key players in this multimodal mix and sort of what you see their roles are today and then how that's going to kind of evolve over time? Well, clearly, the city. The city has an interest in managing the use of the resource, of the infrastructure, reducing congestion, reducing air pollution, all of these things that make a city livable, that make it smarter, that make it cleaner, that make it more efficient. And I get that, and I love that. It's the reason that I love cities so much. But again, it sometimes goes counter to what users at the end of the day are looking for. Users, and that's why users will turn to uh, things that cities might not perceive to be ideal or, or contrary to those, to those objectives. And of course, there's a little bit of a tension in, in different studies saying different things about ride hailing. Does it increase? Does it decrease congestion? Does it enable people to give up their privately owned vehicle or does it uh, does it not do that at all and, and, and lead to a lot, a lot of dead-end trips? Uh, and that, frankly, is a question of location as, as much as anything. But there you are. There you have the city. You have the private entities that include ride hail, bike share, uh, scooter share companies, all of the companies that stand behind a lot of these mobility operators as well. In other words, the venture community that stands behind it. And then you have, in some cases as well, national regulators. Now that varies hugely, of course, between North America, Asia, and, uh, and Europe. In Europe, of course, you have the national plus the supranational, the EU, that also gets involved in smart mobility in some cases, although ultimately it comes down to what's happening on the ground in each city. And what is the mix right now? I mean, based on your experience, is it primarily the private companies that are doing the additional multimodal solutions in complement with the public transit or are public transit operators themselves getting really more heavily involved in that? How do you see things today based on your experience being out there in the market? It's a real colorful mix, Sam. 
I have spoken with public transport operators, you know, the uh, head of purchasing at one public transport operator who literally said to me, I'm 56 years old. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm buying my next fleet of 30 diesel buses for our city. I'm certainly not going to experiment with autonomous shuttles. Our city is going to run on diesel for a very long time. And it's very, very frustrating. It really is if you're engaged in the mobility community the way we are to hear that. On the other hand, then you've got cities that are really, really open that are trialing on the autonomous shuttles or integrating ride pooling into their public transport network, which I think is awesome. You know, the, you, we, we, we know the companies, companies like Moya and Via that, that really fill a huge gap in the market between what the public transport operators are offering and what a lot of the private operators are offering as well. So there's a big, big, big bandwidth between the best and the worst public transport operators. Let me give you one more example, Sam. I remember there was a heat wave, I think it was in D.C. or Baltimore, somewhere on the East Coast in the U.S. And I recall that the public transport operator made an announcement that said, you are for this week only permitted to take water onto our public transport network. Think about this disconnect from a user point of view where on the public transport, you could get a ticket for taking water any other week of the year. And on the other hand, you've got ride hailing, which is giving you free water as you sit in the back of the vehicle to get from A to B. From a user point of view, how can a public transport operator be so incredibly disconnected? I really do hope that the the, the new competition, that and, and, and really it has to be seen as new competition, from ride hailing, from ride pooling, ride sharing, uh, really gives some of these operators a bit of a jolt. Let's take the long view. How do you think that this is going to play out in terms of that competition? Who's who's going to win out at the end of the day? Is it fair to say that there's going to be a winner, private versus public, in terms of who's owning and operating these transportation services, let's say, 20 years from now? I'd like to think that the ultimate winner is the user, is the rider, is the resident of the city. Because what we are seeing is much, much more choice. You know, five years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, really, we had small, medium, large, extra large, right? You had a, a bicycle, you had a car for max four people, and then you had this huge jump to an 80-person bus or a 400-person train. And this gap between a four-person vehicle and an 80-person bus that was never filled. And, and that's why people have, in their minds, always made this choice between, okay, public transport is the 80-person bus, or I can take the comfort of my own vehicle or, or a taxi or whatever. And what we're seeing now is, again, through shared mobility of all sorts and sizes, additional choice for the user, additional choice in terms of size, additional choice in terms of speed, additional choice in terms of cost as well. So I think really the ultimate winner is the user. And what the city can do to make it happen is really be, well, the choreographer, if you will, right? They can they can enable this or they can hinder it. I'd love to see them enable it by bringing all the parties to the table and saying, look, our users have a great diversity of interests, a great diversity of needs. 
let's not try to cookie cutter the whole thing and try to force them either into an 80 person bus or a four person car or a bicycle, right? Let's give them additional options across the bandwidth. Would the existing sort of large format public transit solutions still be relevant in the future in your view? Trains, buses, et cetera. I think in a lot of cities, there's absolutely no way to get around the just the, the, the sheer volume that needs to go from A to B. The Jubilee line in London does, what is it, 700, 800 people every 90 seconds. There's absolutely no way that you can do that above ground. And you most certainly can't do that in the era as well. So taking a little bit of the air out of the, <laughs> you know, VTOL uh, and, and drone uh, market, there's no way that we can avoid using trains and buses and in particular subways in cities. And why would we want to? They are very, very efficient for the trunk. But once we get outside of the centers, I think that we're going to see a big change, especially around autonomous shuttles especially around on-demand transport. And that, I think, will probably also lead to fewer subway lines being built, in particular in the suburbs of cities. Walk us through what, what would an experience be like for a passenger then in that sort of multimodal environment? Like, practically speaking, what are they doing? Are they opening their smartphone? Are they booking a ride? Like, how how are they going to get to work? Is it, you, you gave an example in the beginning about, well, you have to transfer once and then you transfer again. But what does it look like in 20 years? Of course, this depends a lot on the city, Sam. There are cities that are being built right now, in particular in the Middle East and in Asia, that have the opportunity to rethink, reimagine what mobility looks like, and what an amazing opportunity when you can start from scratch. Right? A lot of the cities that we're familiar with, especially in the Western world, look, they need to use and they need to fund and they need to continue relying on a public transport network. In some cases, that's over 100 years old, but continually updated just for throughput purposes, among other things, but also because they don't have the option of of creating new um, uh, new infrastructure for things like autonomous shuttles, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are in a, let's call it a newly developed city, you may still have a trunk line, which is a, an underground train, an overground train, whatever it might, might be for those high throughput areas. But what you'll have after that is indeed choice of whether it's a scooter, an e-bike, an autonomous shuttle to take you to the final destination. And ideally not with a transition of another two or three changes, because it's those changes that people, those inter interchanges, I should say, that people, well, they have a bit of a fear around, oh my goodness, am I going to miss my train? Or if I have to change from this line to that line, which stairs am I going to use? Oh, the last time I was there, the stairs were closed and the lift was broken. Well, <laughs> if we reduce the interchanges, we create additional incentive for people to use public transport. And with that, I include all of the options that we'll call transporting the public. 
And that's where we get into this situation that you were saying earlier, Sam, public-private kind of comes together because ultimately public transport is anything that transports the public, whether it's run by a private entity or by a public entity. So the layer that would interface, let's call it the software layer that would interface with the passenger would be something that would be facilitated by the city, but then the operations in the background could be provided by various entities, some of them private, public, some of them private. But just to be clear, what you're saying is, let's say a city of tomorrow that's being built today in a desert, for lack of a better sure. image there, they would the city itself would provide that booking layer software and say, okay, where are you going today? And then whatever results are served up are a combination of different entities, different actors that are doing the actual operations and are somehow stitched together. The, the, the trip is stitched together between, between different parties. Is, does, is that what you're saying? It could well be the city, but it could be anything else, right? For me, mobility is completely second nature. And, and it shouldn't really mean that we go from one app to another app and input our destination from one app or our payment details into another app. It's a little bit like, you know, could you imagine buying something from Amazon and then having to go into a different app just to complete your order or make a payment? Of course, you wouldn't do that. Why should I have have to open a separate app to book a taxi to get to the airport for the flight that I just booked? People do want the seamlessness. So if I'm on the hotel check-in app, why shouldn't I be able to book my scooter, my bike, my ride hail vehicle directly from the hotel check-in app? Why can't I order food directly from the hotel check-in app? If I'm going to an event and I happen to be on the website or the, the, the app of the event, shouldn't I be able to book my mobility straight out of that app as well? And if I happen to be on the app of, you know, the city or the tourist bureau or booking a restaurant or a conference that I'm at, mobility should be completely second nature and, and, and fully integrated, including payment into those apps. And I think we can do that. And if it becomes second nature, then it becomes a lot easier to choose alternatives to the private car. It seems to me that the, that interoperability between different systems can become quite complex, right? I mean, those systems today are we're practically not speaking to each other because we don't have so many examples in the world where passengers can really have that experience that you're describing. So how is that actually going to work from your perspective? I mean, how are all of these disparate systems going to kind of come together in the future and start speaking the same language so that you can just send a request over to the ride-hailing company kind of like automatically in the background? So Sam, you and I, we're both in the API business, right? We're both in the business of creating a platform that allows for the exchange of data between either different apps or even hardware and an app. For example, in your case, it's the it's the hardware, let's say the scooter, that communicates with whether it's fleet management software or a consumer app. That's one particular API, and ours is just the one that creates the interoperability to any of a number of different front ends, whether it's a mass platform, as I said, or a super app or a financial services app that allows for mobility or food or anything else to be booked. I love asking our guests to share 
a controversial perspective. So what's something that you believe to be true that many people don't agree with you about, about, about the future of mobility? I've pretty much stopped talking about electrification because for me, it's an absolute and complete given. There's not even a debate or a discussion anymore. There's a discussion in Germany anyway, still around hydrogen. That too, that ship has absolutely sailed. I don't know how controversial it is amongst your listeners, but at least the people that I speak with now, for them, it's crystal clear now that we're in a battery electric world that hydrogen is not a part of the picture for anything short of a train for that matter. And that's why my focus, my personal focus is a lot more on shared mobility and to a certain extent as well, autonomous mobility. Do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners today? Yeah. I think it's fair to say, Sam, that we're still very, very much at the beginning of this absolute revolution, right? Whether it's energy, music, entertainment, books, news, you know, we pay per use for everything. And as a result, we have gotten rid of bookshelves. We've gotten rid of DVD players. We've gotten rid of so many things in our own homes. Now let's take that in the context of our built infrastructure, right? If we get rid of the privately owned vehicle because we've enabled a better alternative to it, then we can completely change the way that cities look. We don't need parking spots, certainly not at the level that we have them now. Parking spots are, are, are the biggest waste of space in our cities. They disallow density. They disallow walking. They disallow, uh, you know, a community feeling. And I think this, the, the big changes in mobility are going to come once we start changing the infrastructure. And we're beginning to see that in the wake of COVID as well. A lot more bicycle lanes. We're seeing Paris with a 15-minute uh, city. Uh, we're seeing, uh, of course, an, an increase in the intensity of discussion around super blocks, such as the ones uh, in, in Barcelona. Lots more cities focusing on clean air zones. And I'm really, really excited about that. So, again, we're just at the beginning. And in the same way we got rid of bookshelves and CD racks, we're going to get rid of parking, and perhaps even a lot of road infrastructure that is required for the privately owned vehicle. Lucas, thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to, to chat with you and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks a lot, Sam. Really enjoyed it. All the best to you.